This is Guns and Butter. Imperialism is getting something for nothing. Imperialism is getting other countries surplus without actually being productive at all, but just by creating a structure where you get something for nothing. You dominate other countries and they have to pay you tribute. And uh, uh, America doesn't tell other countries, you have to pay us tribute, like the Roman Empire uh, would tell its uh, provinces. It would say, you have to invest all of your savings in U.S. dollars. So in effect, the financial system is a tributary system. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, de-dollarizing the American financial empire. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. His most recent books include Lending, Foreclosure, and Redemption from Bronze Age Finance to the Jubilee Year, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics, a guide to reality in an age of deception. We return again today to a discussion of Dr. Hudson's seminal 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. We discuss how the United States has dominated the world economically, both as the world's largest creditor and then later as the world's largest debtor, and take a look at the coming demise of dollar domination. Michael Hudson, welcome back. Well, it's good to be back, Bonnie. Why is President Trump insisting that the Federal Reserve lower interest rates? I thought they were already extremely low. And if they did lower them, what effect would lower interest rates have? Well, they are extremely low, and they've been kept low uh, in order to uh, try to keep providing cheap money for speculators to buy stocks and bonds. Uh, But Trump wants them to be low, not simply to uh, inflate the housing market and inflate uh, the stock market more, but he imagines that if you keep interest rates lower than those of Europe, and that's what he said, he was criticizing the Fed uh, for not having interest rates that were even lower than those of Europe. And he thinks that uh, if the dollar, uh, that if interest rates are low, then there's going to be an outflow of uh, finance capital from this country, uh, borrowing at low interest, to buy foreign securities, stocks and bonds, at a higher interest rate. And the lower the uh, exchange rate, he believes, uh, the more chance there will be in rebuilding America's uh, manufacturing exports. Uh, The fantasy he has is that if you uh, somehow... uh, that you lower the price of labor. If you if you lower the dollar's value, what really goes down? There's a common price for oil in the world, a common price of raw materials, uh, pretty much a common price for capital and credit. So the one thing that's devalued when you push a currency down is the value of labor. 
because uh, all of a sudden workers have to pay much more for goods that they import. If the dollar goes down against uh, the Chinese uh, yen, for instance, or the European currency, then uh, Chinese uh, goods are going to cost much more here, and European goods will cost much more. Now, uh, how much more they'll cost depends on how far the dollar goes down. But even if the dollar went down 90%, even if prices were to go up 10 times here, and if the dollar were to become uh, a junk currency like the Argentinian uh, currency or the uh, Latin American currencies, uh, nothing could really increase American manufacturing exports because our American labor doesn't work in factories anymore. They drive, uh, they drive cabs and they uh, work in uh, the service industry, or uh, they work for medical insurance industry, or uh, bothering people on uh, robocall phones. But if you gave American workers uh, in industrial manufacturing companies all of their clothing and uh, food uh, for nothing, uh, they still couldn't compete with foreign countries because their uh, housing costs are so high, their uh, medical insurance is so high, their taxes are so high that uh, they're priced out of world markets long before they have uh, any chance of uh, having the dollar go down by 1% or 10% or 20% or even 30%. If you don't have factories going and if you don't have a transportation system and uh, if you don't have a uh, uh, you know power supply and public utilities uh, that are being dismantled here, there's uh, nothing that uh, uh, currency manipulation can do that is going to somehow enable America to uh, uh, rebuild its manufacturing uh, export industry. Uh, The American parent companies have already moved their factories abroad, not at home. Uh, So the big corporations have already given up on America. And uh, as long as uh, Trump uh, is not going to change that system where basically he uh, gives tax advantages for companies to move abroad, there's nothing he can do that's really going to help restore uh, industry here. But he doesn't believe that. He, he's picked up all of the junk economics of the International Monetary Fund, the patter talk that it's given to Latin America, saying, if you just uh, lower your currency more, you'll be able to lower your living standards and pay uh, labor less and less in dollar terms or hard currency terms. And, uh, you know, at some point you'll be more competitive. And it hasn't worked for 50 years in Latin America. It hasn't worked for other countries. Uh, And it never worked in America. Uh, In the 19th century, uh, Americans had uh, the economy of high wages doctrine. They said, if you pay labor more, it's more productive. It can have a better education. It works better. And high wage labor can undersell low wage labor. And uh, Trump is there for over 100 years behind uh, the times in picking up this uh, IMF idea that you can just somehow uh, devalue the currency. What it does do when you devalue the dollar is it enables Wall Street firms to borrow uh, 1% and to buy European uh, currencies and bonds yielding 3 or 4 or 5% or stocks. Uh, yielding even more. And uh, the whole idea is uh, that America is doing what Japan did in 1990. Very low interest rates increases what's called the carry trade. The carry trade is when you borrow at a cheap price and you buy bonds yielding 
uh, a higher interest rate, and you make an arbitrage uh, gain there. And so uh, all Trump is really doing is creating an arbitrage opportunity uh, for uh, Wall Street investors, pretending that this is uh, pro-labor and is going to uh, rebuild manufacturing. But it it really just helps uh, hollow out uh, the U.S. economy and uh, send money from here uh, to other countries to build them up uh, instead of building ourselves up. So the effect of what Trump's doing is the exact opposite of uh, what he says he's doing. What a surprise. Well, exactly. And what would be the point of driving investment into foreign countries and away from the U.S.? If you're an investor, uh, uh, you're quite happy to do that uh, because you can make more money by uh, dismantling the U.S. economy. You can make money by borrowing at 1% and buying a security, a bond or a stock that yields 3 or 4%. That's called arbitrage. It's a free lunch. Uh, and the effect of the free lunch, as you say, is to build up foreign economies and to undercut your own. But uh, finance is cosmopolitan. Finance is not patriotic. Finance is just uh, uh, like uh, a, a robot. It uh, goes wherever the rate of return is highest, and uh, that's uh, uh, essentially what has been deindustrializing the United States uh, for the last 40 years. It also sounds, from what you're saying, that Donald Trump's uh, policies are leading to uh, doing to the U.S. what the IMF and World Bank have traditionally been doing to foreign economies. Well, that's what happens when you're told to devalue, and uh, all you do when uh, you're told to devalue is uh, the financial sector will say, okay, uh, interest rates are going down, the current dollar is going to go down in value, let's move our money into euros or into gold or into Japanese yen or Swiss francs that are going to go up in the exchange rate. And so you're offering a financial capital gain uh, for people uh, U.S. investors that want to speculate in foreign currencies, but essentially uh, you're hollowing out the economy here. Do you think that Donald Trump has any understanding of what he's really doing, or does he, in fact, understand what he's doing? I don't think he does understand. I think he, he uh, has a very oversimplified view of the world. and He thinks, well, if we devalue the dollar, uh, then uh, we can undersell China uh, and uh, Europe. Well, you can only undersell China and Europe and save Europe in making cars if you have car-making factories here. Uh, if you don't have a car-making factory, no matter how low the dollar goes, you're not going to be able to undersell European car makers. And if you don't have uh, a computer uh, manufacturing set of factories and suppliers uh, already in the United States, then you're not going to have any uh, factories able to undersell China because we don't have any competition here. So it's all a fantasy. It's like saying uh, if we had some ham, we could have some ham and eggs if we had some eggs. it's, it's economic nonsense. Only if we had unemployed car makers and unemployed uh, computer makers 
and other manufacturers here uh, with factories that just uh, were idle, uh, would devaluation make sense? Because then you, you could devalue if Americans were just uh, pretty competitive, but not very. But Americans are not just a little bit uncompetitive. The housing costs in America are so high. The medical costs, the health insurance costs are so high. The taxes are so high. And the prices for uh, basic infrastructure are so high that uh, there's no way that we can compete with foreign countries. Uh, since 1980, the economy has pretty much been uh, made very high cost. Uh, there's been a huge squeeze uh, on labor by raising the prices uh, that labor has to pay, uh, thereby reducing the living standards even if wages go up, uh, people can't afford uh, uh, to live as well as they did 30 years ago. So uh, what is needed in order to restore a full employment industrial economy would be a radical restructuring. You'd have to have a deprivatization. You'd have to break up monopolies. You'd have to have the kind of economy, that uh, economic reform that you had under Roosevelt in the 1930s. And uh, I don't see that happening. Do you think that Donald Trump was installed as U.S. president to oversee the bankruptcy of the United States and the dismantling <laughs> of the U.S. empire? Nobody installed him. Uh, he installed himself. I, I don't think anybody really expected uh, him to win. Uh, and if you look at the odds that the odds makers uh, gave, you know, from the time he announced his candidacy, uh, everybody thought that uh, the sleepy Bush uh, would probably get the nomination. And they thought that uh, Bush would lose to uh, Hillary. So there was an attempt to install Hillary or Jeb Bush, but nobody tried to install uh, Trump. I mean, he just made an end run around them by uh, just uh, straight talk. Uh, but a straight talk, uh, he didn't really have any advisors who he'd listen to, because he's always been sort of a one-man uh, uh, show. So he really doesn't know what he's doing economically. Uh, he knows how to cheat people and uh, how to make money in real estate by simply not paying suppliers and by borrowing from banks and not paying them. But he has no idea how to run an economy because uh, being a, a sort of uh, real estate mafia head isn't the same thing as running a whole economy. And he just has no idea. And I don't think anyone really knows how to control them except maybe Fox News. Well, what is going on with the ruling class in the United States? Does anybody know how to run an economy? Uh, if, you, if they know how to run an economy, you want to keep them out of any public office. Because if they're running an economy to help the economy, to help the people, means not running the economy to help Wall Street. You can do one of two things. You can, you can help labor or you can help Wall Street. Uh, and if running the economy means helping labor, improving living standards, uh, uh, giving better medical care, uh, then uh, this is going to be at the expense of the financial sector and of corporate profits. Uh, and so the last thing you want to do is have somebody run the economy for the economy's purpose instead of for Wall Street's purpose. Uh, the question is, who's going to do the planning? Is it going to be elected public officials, the government, or is it going to be Wall Street? And uh, Wall Street uh, has as its uh, 
public relations uh, office, the University of Chicago, that says a free market is when the rich people on Wall Street, when the financial class uh, runs an economy, uh, that's a free market. But if you let uh, people vote uh, uh, and democratically elect governments to regulate, that's not a free market. And uh, this is the whole fight that uh, Trump has uh, against China. He wants to tell China, why don't you let the banks run China uh, and have a free market? Uh, You've got very rich over the last uh, 50 years, and that's really unfair. We want your people to be as poor as the American people. So why don't you get rid of the public transportation? Why don't you get rid of the subsidy? Why don't you let a lot of your companies go bankrupt so Americans can buy them? Why don't you have the same kind of free market that has wrecked the U.S. economy? And of course, China doesn't want that kind of a free market. It does have a free competitive market. It does have a market economy. And the United States doesn't even have much of a market to have a market economy around. It's just sort of a, it's, it's in a state of shrinkage. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, de-dollarizing the American financial empire. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your seminal work from 1972, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, you write that, quote, in fact, whereas U.S. domination of the world economy stemmed from 1920 through 1960 from its creditor position, its control since the 1960s has stemmed from its debtor position. Not only have the tables been turned, but U.S. diplomats have found that their leverage as the world's major debtor economy is fully as strong as that which formerly had reflected its net creditor position. This sounds counterintuitive. Could you break this down? Let's start with 1920 through 1960. How was the U.S. able to dominate the world economy from its position as a creditor? Well, other countries were broke, uh, and uh, the creditor position really began in World War I when uh, it lent uh, money to the Allies before it joined the war. And uh, when the war was over, uh, it said to England and France, well, now we want you to pay us for all the arms we sold. Uh, Well, in the past, for centuries, uh, when a war was over, uh, the victors usually forgave all the debts among each other. uh, And for the first time really in history, America insisted that the Allies pay for all of the uh, military support uh, that we'd given them, uh, uh, England and France, before we came in. So the Allies uh, uh, were pretty devastated by the war. And they turned to Germany and insisted in German reparations uh, that bankrupted Germany. So uh, all the money of Europe, uh, German money was going to pay England and France, and French and uh, English money were going uh, to pay the United States. Uh, Their currencies were going down. And so America had all the money. And so American investors, uh, with all the money, could then uh, say, well, uh, other countries uh, uh, can't afford to invest in their industry, we can buy control of their industry. We can buy uh, control. And uh, they essentially used credit to uh, buy control, and they prevented other countries from uh, competing because uh, they imposed a gold standard. In other words, uh, gold was sort of the measure of power. Uh, And America was so much more productive not having suffered uh, war damage here, that uh, between the end of World War II and 1950, when the Korean War broke out, America held 
over 75% of the world's monetary gold. And gold was the basis for money, so we could afford to uh, support our currency uh, because we had very heavy agricultural exports, uh, growing industrial exports, and we could uh, essentially buy up uh, the leading industries of uh, Europe and Latin America and other countries. So we got uh, money from our creditor position because we were rich and other countries weren't. Well, Beginning in 1950, for the first time, the U.S. balance of payments moved into deficit with the Korean War. Uh, and it got even worse when uh, uh, President Eisenhower decided that uh, America has to support the principle of colonialism and imperialism. And uh, the test of imperialism was in uh, Southeast Asia. And we had to support France and uh, help France recover the colonies uh, that was French Indochina. Uh, Vietnam, Laos, and by the Vietnam War of the 1960s, you had the dollar uh, essentially r running such large balance of payments deficits that uh, every week on Wall Street, we would watch the gold supply go down and down and down to countries that uh, weren't at war, like France and Germany that were cashing in all these dollars that were thrown off uh, for U.S. gold. Well, already in the 60s, we were able to see America's going to run out of gold because of the uh, uh, war spending abroad. And uh, finally, it did by uh, 1971 in August, when uh, Nixon said, uh, we're closing the gold window, we're losing all of our gold, we're, uh, we're accelerating the uh, deficit because uh, we're still fighting in Southeast Asia. We're going to fight uh, elsewhere in the world, and we're going to have a permanent balance of payments deficit because of our military. Uh, the private sector was just in balance all these years. In the 50s and 60s, the private sector was in balance. All the deficit uh, in the balance of payments was military. Well, when uh, America went off gold, people began to think, what is America going to do now? Doomsday's here. We've lost our, our position of ruling the world through gold. Well, uh, what I realized, and uh, what a number of other economists realized, but I was the first to publish it, was that if countries no longer could buy gold and no longer hold gold in their international reserves, what are they going to hold? There's only one thing that they could hold in their reserves, and that is U.S. Treasury bonds, meaning a Treasury bond is a loan to the U.S. Treasury. When you buy a bond, it's helping finance the U.S. Uh, domestic budget deficit. Uh, and basically, it was the budget deficit that ended up to finance the balance of payments deficit. So uh, America continued to uh, spend abroad militarily, and uh, in 1974, you had uh, the OPEC countries quadruple the price of oil. And at that time, the governments uh, told Saudi Arabia and other countries, you can charge whatever you want for your oil, but you have to recycle all of your dollars. We don't want you to buy gold because uh, we're going to keep the gold we have, but uh, we want the whole world to have its savings in loans to the United States. So uh, it'll be an 
act of war if you don't recycle these dollars that you get for uh, your oil exports into the American economy, mainly into U.S. Treasury bonds, but you can also buy uh, other bonds and private sector stocks uh, to help push up the stock and bond markets here and uh, support the dollar. So the dollar didn't go down because uh, other countries that were receiving the dollars would simply recycle, uh, use these dollars to buy uh, treasury bonds. Now, what would have happened if they wouldn't have done this? If they wouldn't have uh, bought U.S. Treasury bonds or stocks, let's say you're Germany or France or Japan, if you don't recycle these dollars, then your currency is going to go up. Here, all these dollars are being converted into your currency, uh, and that increases the demand for your currency. That goes up. But by buying the bonds, now you're, you're recycling uh, and absorbing these dollars by sending them back to the U.S. and your currency doesn't go up. So by running a balance of payments deficit where other countries are told, keep your foreign reserves in dollars, this forces uh, other countries to keep their currencies, uh, state exchange rates stable only by uh, lending more and more money to the U.S. government. So essentially, that meant that the United States had a free ride. Uh, the United States could uh, encircle the world with military bases, uh, and the dollars thrown off are the countries that simply have to return to the United States. So it's like, imagine rating IOUs, when you go out to spend at uh, the store or restaurants, but these IOUs are never going to be collected. Other people are going to say, hey, we have an IOU uh, from Bonnie Faulkner. That's going to be our savings. And instead of putting money in the bank, we're just going to collect IOUs from Bonnie Faulkner. And by the time they had, say, a billion dollars worth of your IOUs as you went on a spending spree, uh, there's no way that you could pay this billion dollars uh, and so the rest of the world will say, well, we really don't want to foreclose on Bonnie because then uh, she couldn't pay and all of a sudden we'd lose uh, on our balance sheets all of this uh, money, that we, these IOUs that we've been collecting. Well, essentially that's what uh, foreign countries are doing. The United States has already said we are not going to repay any foreign country the, uh, the, the debt that we owe them. Other countries have to pay us or else we'll bomb them. It'll be an act of war if they don't repay. But because we're the exceptional country, and our uh, currency is other people's savings, all the money you save has to be in loans to us that we're never going to repay. Uh, that was a huge uh, free ride. And uh, you'd think that this is a free ride that uh, uh, Donald Trump is going to keep going. But imagine uh, everyone's surprise when about a month ago, uh, he said, China is uh, manipulating its currency. Well, what does he mean by that? Uh, China's earning a lot of dollars when it exports its good to the United States. Uh, what does it do with the dollars? Uh, it, it tried to do what America did with uh, Europe and South America. It tried to buy American companies. But uh, the United States says, uh, you can't buy American companies for national security. We think our national security would be uh, threatened if you would buy a filling station like it wanted to buy in California. We think it'll be threatened if you buy any company at all. There's only one thing you can do. You can 
buy U.S. Treasury bonds and make your save uh, these dollars for the exports. Just uh, lend them to the U.S. Treasury. Well, uh, China realizes now that the U.S. Treasury isn't going to repay. And even if it wanted to recycle into Treasury bonds or U.S. stocks and bonds or real estate, Donald Trump now is saying, well, we want your currency to go up. Uh, Chinese yen against the dollar. Uh, we don't want you to keep your currency down by doing what uh, we've told other countries to do for 40 years, uh, to buy U.S. Uh, Treasury uh, securities. That's artificial manipulation if you're keeping your foreign exchange in uh, dollars. So he's, uh, he's telling countries, and specifically China, uh, you have to get rid of your dollars uh, you can't buy dollars with the export earnings anymore. So, of course, China's buying gold and Russia's buying gold. And the whole world is now reverting to uh, the gold standard. And uh, what they realize is there's one great advantage of the gold standard, and that is there's only a limited amount of gold in the world's central banks. And if uh, a, a country uh, wages war, uh, any country that wages war is going to run such a balance of payments deficit that it's going to lose all the gold. So imposing the gold standard again is going to prevent any country, including the United States, uh, from going to war. And uh, Trump is, uh, ironically, uh, breaking up the whole American financial empire by telling people, don't be part of this recycling. Uh, you've got to de-dollarize your economy. You've got to make your economy independent of the United States uh, so that you can't uh, hire uh, labor here. We won't hire Chinese uh, in our uh, IT sectors. He's already announced that. Uh, we're not going to let Chinese study at uh, subjects at universities that they can rival us in. And uh, essentially, our economies are going to separate. So uh, he said, if we can't win, if we can't come out uh, exploiting you, being a winner in any uh, agreement, then we're not going to have an agreement. And so he's driving not only China, but Russia and now Europe uh, and other countries all out of the U.S. orbit. Uh, and the end result is going to be that the United States is going to be isolated all alone without being able to uh, manufacture like it used to. It's dismantled its manufacturing. Uh, there were some population figures uh, that were released a week ago, and the middle of America is emptying out. Uh, the Midwest, uh, the mountain states, uh, the population is moving, gravitating to the east and the west coast and the Gulf Coast. So it, uh, essentially Trump is uh, accelerating the deindustrialization of the United States without doing anything to put in place uh, new uh, productive uh, powers and uh, with not even wanting other countries to uh, invest here. So the German car companies, for instance, say, wait a minute, you're putting tariffs on uh, uh, the imports that we make to build cars in the United States that we did to get around uh, America's illegal tariff barriers against uh, uh, German and French and uh, other automobiles. Uh, and now you're not even letting us uh, uh, import the uh, parts that we need to assemble these cars in the non-unionized plants that we've made throughout the South. Uh, so, you know, this is this is crazy. Uh, uh, they're talking about, well, what will we do? Will we just uh, we'll, uh, make a trade with General Motors and uh, Chrysler and we'll get their uh, European factories and we'll give them the American factories? There's just uh, a whole split. And uh, the split is occurring without any attempt to uh, remake uh, American labor 
competitive by lowering uh, its cost of housing, by lowering its uh, price of uh, health insurance and medical care, by lowering the transportation costs or the infrastructure costs. And so uh, America's being left high and dry is a uh, high-priced economy uh, in a nationalistic world that's running a huge balance of payments deficit to support its 800 military bases all over the world. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, De-Dollarizing the American Financial Empire. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So it sounds like when the U.S. went off the gold standard, then the dollar basically replaced gold in terms of what uh, foreign governments uh, could hold their assets in. Now, you're saying that uh, foreign economies then, when there was no more gold standard, that if they didn't buy U.S. treasuries, that the price the price of their currency would rise and make them uncompetitive? Yes. Imagine if Americans would... Uh, 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 pay more and more dollars uh, to buy, say, German uh, cars. Uh, there's going to be a demand for German marks. This is before the euro. And uh, the German mark would rise in price. Uh, that basically was what was happening throughout uh, the 60s and 70s, before the euro. And uh, so how does Germany keep down uh, the value of the mark? Well, it will have to buy something that, that costs dollars. Well, it's not going to buy... American exports, because America already was beginning to export less and less, uh, except for its food, and Germany can only eat so much uh, wheat and soybeans. And so uh, the only thing that Germany could buy that was priced in dollars, that it had to buy dollars to buy, were U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, Japan was in a similar problem, and the Japanese tried to buy U.S. real estate, but they uh, they didn't have any idea of uh, what made real estate valuable, and they, they lost their shirts on Rockefeller Center. Uh, they lost a billion dollars by buying Rockefeller Center, not realizing that uh, the building was separate from the land value, and the land was owned by Columbia, and uh, the building was running at a deficit, and everything was in the rental value paid to the landowner. Uh, they just had no idea of how American real estate worked. Uh, but uh, the Germans essentially just bought uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. That uh, kept uh, the German mark from rising even more rapidly, and it, uh, it essentially kept uh, the balance of payments in balance. Um, what America worried about was what if the euro... Uh, becomes a rival to the dollar, because after all, Europe is uh, not deindustrializing. Europe was moving forward and producing uh, better cars and airplanes and competing in all sorts of things. So the United States, again, led by uh, the University of Chicago, paid off foreign politicians and leaders to cripple the euro and uh, make the euro, uh, create the euro as a uh, austerity currency where you keep so few euros in existence that uh, there's no vehicle for foreign countries uh, to keep their foreign reserves in euros because uh, the United States uh, can create more and more dollar debt for foreign currencies to buy by running a budget deficit, uh, and we can follow Keynesian policies of running a deficit to uh, 
uh, try to employ labor more. But uh, the Eurozone uh, refuses to let countries run a budget deficit of more than 3% of its uh, GDP. Now, running more than 3% of GDP is just very, very marginal uh, compared to the United States. So if if, uh, you're trying not to run any deficit at all, and if you do, to keep it less than 3%, then you're imposing austerity on your country, uh, keeping your uh, labor down, you're stifling your internal market, you're uh, cutting your throat from uh, being able to create a real rival to the dollar. So that's why Donald Rumsfeld called uh, Europe a dead zone. Uh, the Eurozone is a dead zone, he said. And why the only uh, alternatives for uh, a rival currency are the Chinese yen, uh, and uh, they're moving into a, a gold-based currency area with Russia, uh, Iran, uh, a number of other uh, countries that are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Well, the European Union... Uh, not allowing European countries within the Eurozone to not run deficits more than 3% was basically cutting their own throat. Why would they do such a thing? Because uh, the heads of the central bank are part of fighting a class war. They look at themselves as uh, generals in the army to fight against labor. Uh, They are willing to cut their own throat as long as they can hurt the working class, uh, lower wages, and uh, help uh, the wealthy uh, investing class. Uh, Europe has a much more vicious class war than the United States does, uh, and it's always had a more vicious class war. It's never really emerged from its aristocratic uh, sort of post-feudal system, and uh, it its uh, central bankers and its universities all follow the uh, University of Chicago free market school, saying the way to get rich is to make your labor poor and uh, to create a government where labor really doesn't have a voice. Uh, and that's the uh, political philosophy of Europe, and uh, it's why Europe is falling further and further behind and is not uh, shared in the growth that uh, China and other countries that uh, don't have this reactionary philosophy are experiencing. So it sounds like then the United States has been able to dominate the world economy since 1960 from a debtor position. 1971. That's right. It it wasn't dominated when it was losing gold from 1950 and 1960 to 71. That wasn't dominating. That was losing. That was uh, turning America's gold supply over to France, Germany, Japan, and uh, other countries. So it was losing by uh, being a debtor at that time. Only when you stop uh, the gold standard and leave countries with no alternative for their savings, but to buy U.S. Treasury bonds, or else, as the Treasury said, or else we'll kill you, or it will be an act of war. So uh, after 1971, world diplomacy is essentially backed by American military power. It's not a free market. It's uh, enforced by military power, and the military power uh, is to keep people in a financial system uh, whereby the United States can run into debt without having to repay it, uh, but other countries have to run into debt, uh, and they are not allowed to expand their economy to rival the United States uh, and not able to expand their economy by uh, improving living standards for their labor force. Only countries outside of the U.S. orbit, China, 
uh, in principle, Russia, uh, but other countries uh, in, in Asia are uh, able to increase uh, their living standards and capital investment in technology by being free of uh, this uh, financial class war position. In Super Imperialism, you write that, quote, pressures to create a new international economic order collapsed by the end of the 1970s, end quote. Are you saying that other countries simply gave up and acquiesced to American monetary imperialism? What happened? It's not simply that they gave up. It's that the United States went to their officials. I'm told there was wholesale bribery. Uh, officials in the Reagan administration told me that uh, they just paid off foreign government people to uh, uh, support uh, the U.S. position uh, and not support a new international economic order. Uh, they also maneuvered uh, within the party politics of uh, European countries and Near Eastern countries uh, to promote uh, pro-American officials and sideline uh, any officials that did not want to essentially act as uh, U.S. satellites uh, and a lot of money was involved. So uh, the U.S. has corrupted democratic politics uh, throughout Europe, uh, the Near East. Uh, it tried to do it uh, throughout much of Asia. And uh, that basically succeeded in uh, sterilizing any uh, foreign independence from the United States while Thatcher and uh, Reagan's uh, uh, neoliberal ideas uh, were promoted instead of uh, the kind of uh, mixed economy that uh, Roosevelt and social democracy uh, had been pressing for 50 years. Now, if there were pressures to create a new international economic order, uh, which collapsed by the end of the 1970s, what was this new international economic order looking to push back against? Well, in the financial field, uh, it wanted governments to create their own money uh, to promote their own uh, development, just like uh, the United States did. Basically, other countries uh, wanted to do for their economies what the United States did for its economy, uh, to use their governments uh, and deficit spending to uh, build up their infrastructure, to raise living standards, uh, to create housing, and to promote progressive taxation uh, that would have prevented a rentier class, uh, a, a landlord class and a financial class uh, from taking over uh, economic management. And uh, the, the neoliberalism was to promote uh, the financial and uh, real estate sector uh, and monopolies uh, to take over economic management from government. So the question uh, really from the 1980s on was who's going to be the basic planners of uh, society? Is it going to be the financial interest, the banks, uh, whose interest is really the 1% uh, that own most of the banks and most of the bonds and most of the stocks? Or is it going to be uh, the uh, governments trying to have the economy at large uh, grow and prosper, which was uh, the social democratic view that was opposed by uh, Thatcherism and Reaganism? And now this push... Uh, for a new international economic order that collapsed, was this pressure to create a new international economic order, was that brought on by the U.S. going off the gold standard? 
No, not really. It was by it was a reaction against uh, the United States uh, in general wanting to siphon off uh, the commanding heights of every foreign economy. The U.S. wanted to control their uh, raw materials exports, especially their oil and gas. It wanted to control their financial system so that all of the financial gains would go to uh, foreign investors, mainly U.S. investors. Uh, it wanted to uh, make other economies in the world service economies to the United States. Uh, and it wanted to make them into a kind of super NATO alliance that would militarily uh, oppose any country that did not want to be part of the U.S.-centered uh, unilateral economic order. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, De-Dollarizing the American Financial Empire. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And so, and this is what you've been talking about. How does today's super imperialism differ from imperialism of the past? Because it's a higher stage of imperialism. The old imperialism was colonialism. Uh, and you'd come in, you'd use military power to uh, install a sort of client uh, client ruler class. Uh, but there was still, uh, it, each country would have its own currency area. Uh, what made super imperialism is that uh, America doesn't have to colonize another country. It doesn't have to invade a country. It doesn't have to actually go to war with it. All it needs is to have the other country uh, invest all of its savings, all of its uh, export earnings in loans to the United States government that the United States then can keep its interest rates low and enable American investors to borrow from American banks at a low price to buy foreign industry and agriculture that's yielding 10 or 11 or 12 percent. And uh, so the Americans thought that, well, even though we're a debtor, we're, uh, we're borrowing uh, at such a low rate from foreign countries. We're paying maybe 2 or 3 percent on the treasury bonds they have. But we're, meanwhile, pumping these dollars into their economies by buying up their industry and agriculture and infrastructure and public utilities, 12%, 20% capital gains, and soon we'll earn our way out of debt by making them pay. So we're getting a free ride from them. And that really is what imperialism is. Imperialism is getting something for nothing. Imperialism is getting other countries surplus without actually being productive at all, but just by creating a structure where you get something for nothing. You dominate other countries, and they have to pay you tribute. And uh, uh, America doesn't tell other countries, you have to pay us tribute, like the Roman Empire uh, would tell its uh, provinces. It would say, you have to invest all of your savings in U.S. dollars. So in effect, the financial system is a tributary system. You write that, quote, Today, it would be necessary for Europe and Asia to design an artificial, politically created alternative to the dollar as an international store of value. This promises to become the crux of international political tensions for the next generation. The question is, how does the world break out of this double standard dollar domination? How do you see this coming about? 
It's already coming about, and, and China and Russia uh, are reducing their dollar holdings. They're saying we, we don't want to hold uh, American Treasury bonds because uh, if America goes to war with us, it'll do to us what it did to Iran. Uh, it'll just say, we're keeping all the money. We're not going to pay you any of the money for the investment you've kept in uh, the U.S. banks and uh, U.S. Treasury. So they're getting rid of the uh, dollars that they hold, uh, and instead they're buying gold. Uh, among themselves, and they are uh, moving as quickly as they can to be independent of any uh, reliance on U.S. exports or on U.S. needs and building up their uh, military so that uh, if the United States tries to threaten them, uh, they can defend themselves more and more. So uh, the world is already uh, fracturing, and uh, all Trump has done is act as a catalyst of speeding the parting guest. Now, what are these foreign countries like China and Russia, for say, buying gold with? Are they buying it with dollars? Yes, uh, they uh, get dollars uh, from uh, what they're exporting, uh, or uh, euros, and uh, this money goes into the uh, Central Bank of China uh, because uh, the Chinese exporters say, well, uh, now we've just sold uh, these uh, manufacturers to America. They've given us a check in dollars. We want domestic yen to pay our, uh, our workers and uh, our suppliers. So uh, they go to the Bank of China and they exchange the dollars uh, for uh, the yen. And uh, then the Bank of China, the central bank, uh, will have uh, these dollars and they'll decide, well, what are we going to do? We're going to go into the uh, open market and we're going to buy gold. And we're going to uh, we're going to spend it uh, in foreign countries on the Belt and Road Initiative by uh, building a huge transportation uh, railway and uh, steamship uh, and port uh, development uh, to help our exports and to help integrate our economy more uh, with uh, each other uh, and ultimately with Europe, so that uh, we can really replace the United States. Uh, they look at the United States as a dying economy. Well, then, can the Chinese build up their uh, Belt and Road infrastructure projects with dollars? No. Uh, they are uh, getting rid of the dollars. Uh, they already are getting such a surplus each year that uh, they only use the dollars to buy gold or to buy they buy Boeing airplanes with part of it. Uh, they do buy uh, some goods, uh, but mostly they buy raw materials. When uh, China buys... Uh, iron from Australia, uh, for instance. They will take these dollars in the foreign exchange reserves and they will uh, sell the dollars and buy Australian currency so that they can pay uh, uh, Australians in Australian dollars for the uh, iron ore uh, that they import. So they use the, the dollars they get to pay third countries that still are part of the dollar area and still are willing to take dollars instead of holding gold. I see. Well, it is kind of surprising, Michael, that uh, countries haven't started doing this a lot sooner. Well, there's a lot of political pressure. Uh, if countries act independently, they tend to get overthrown pretty quickly. And it takes a country strong enough to resist uh, American uh, election interference and dirty tricks to uh, uh, keep a government that uh, puts its own country first instead of uh, the U.S. Uh, agents that are paying them to uh, serve the U.S. economy rather than uh, their own economy, or who are free of just uh, being brainwashed by uh, University of Chicago junk economics. So how far along would you say is the dollar's demise as the world's 
reserve currency? Well, it's it's already uh, slowing. Uh, Trump is doing everything he can to accelerate it by saying if foreign countries do continue to recycle uh, their uh, export earnings into dollars, and if they continue to give us the free ride, then we'll say they're manipulating their currency. So he would like to uh, end it all by the uh, end of the second term, I guess, in 2024. Now, Michael... Um since for many, many decades now, basically the dollar replaced gold as a reserve currency of, of the world, let's, let's say, what is the United States going to look like then when the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency? What's, what's going to happen to the United States? Well, if it continues to let Wall Street do the economic planning, it'll look like Argentina. And what does Argentina look like? Uh, an oligarchy, a very narrow oligarchy at the top, keeping labor at the bottom, uh, taking away uh, labor's rights to unionize, uh, a country where uh, the financial sector and military sector have uh, uh, won the class war against labor. Now, in terms of a China, um, its Belt and Road Infrastructure Project Uh, it and other countries now buying gold uh, on the open market. Has the Western banking system penetrated China? And if so, how would you characterize the Chinese banking system? Well, there's an attempt by the U.S. to uh, uh, penetrate China. And in the uh, recent uh, agreements, China did uh, permit U.S. banks to start there and create their own credit. I'm not sure that this is going to really take off now that Trump is uh, accelerating the trade war. But basically, uh, uh, in America, uh, you have private banks uh, extending the loans to industry. In China, you have the government banks extending the loans. This means that China cannot have a financial crisis in the way that the United States does for the following reason. About 12% of American companies are said to be zombie companies. In other words, they're already uh, insolvent. They're not... uh, able to make a profit, but the banks are giving them enough money to stay in business uh, just so they won't have to go bankrupt and uh, create a crisis. And China doesn't have that problem because uh, uh, when uh, Chinese industry uh, and factories are not able to pay, that the public Chinese bank can simply forgive the debt. They can say, okay, you can't pay. Uh, we have a choice. Either we can let you go bankrupt and be sold at a low price uh, to some buyer, mainly an American buyer, or we can just uh, say, okay, you can't pay the debt. We're wiping it off the books. So China can simply write the bad debts off the books. If China had been crazy enough to have student loans and have its, its uh, workers be impoverished by having to pay to go to school instead of going to the free Chinese universities, uh, China uh, Central Bank could simply say, okay, we're writing off the uh, uh, student loans. And nobody would lose because the banks are owned by the government. But in America, the banks are owned by the stockholders and mostly by the bondholders. And the bondholders and stockholders would never let uh, Chase Manhattan or Citibank 
or Wells Fargo, say, we're just going to forgive the loans. You don't have to pay the debts. Uh, if you're a factory, you know, we don't want you to have to close down and unemploy your labor. We'll just write down the debt. Um, and if your uh, students are really having a hard time, we'll just uh, write it down so they can spend their money on uh, goods and services. Uh, you're not going to have an American bank doing that, but the Chinese banks can do that. That's why public banking is so much more efficient from an economy-wide level than uh, private banks, and why uh, banking should be a public utility, not uh, privatized. Uh, Yes, and could you further explain how writing down debts is good for the economy? Well, what's the alternative to writing down debts? Uh, If you don't write down debt, uh, America's uh, student loan debt, then uh, the graduates are going to have to pay so much of their money to the, uh, they're going to have to pay so much of the student debt service, I guess now to the government, that uh, they're not going to have enough money to be able to buy a house. They won't have enough money to get married. They won't have enough money to uh, buy goods and services. It means that the only people who can buy houses are graduates with trust funds, uh, students whose families are rich enough that they didn't have to take out a loan. They'd pay for the student's education. Uh, rich enough to say, we'll buy an apartment for you. So you're having a bifurcation of the American economy into people who inherit enough money to be able to have their own housing and their own uh, uh, sort of budgets free of student loans and other debts, and uh, uh, families who are debt-strapped and uh, running into debt. Uh, You're having that financial bifurcation of the American economy, and that's what's making us poorer and poorer and poorer. So this whole privatization scheme, particularly the privatization of the the banking system, say through the Federal Reserve or whatever, uh, the privatization of a lot of the infrastructure, etc., this is what's bankrupting the United States. Yes, and uh, just as it's bankrupted England uh, and other countries that have followed uh, Thatcherism or uh, the neoliberal philosophy since about 1980. Michael Hudson, thank you again. Well, it's always good to have uh, our discussions. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been de-dollarizing the American financial empire. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, the subject of today's broadcast, is posted in PDF format on his website at michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, which is the academic sister volume to super-imperialism. Dr. Hudson acts as an economic advisor to governments worldwide on finance and tax law. Visit his website at michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. 
Email us at Faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?